Academy scholar. Yeah, aspiring scholar, absolutely. And that was our kindergarten teacher. She worships here with us. All right, so at this point, we're going to have uh, children on up, I think, through junior high. We're going to have Sunday school, and you guys are welcome to head out in that direction. It's a tough act to follow, especially, um, you know, the degree of cuteness. Um, I can't quite, but I'll, I'll try, all right? I'll try. Um, glad to have you guys here worshiping with us this morning. Um, this, this Sunday, actually, we're, we're going to be finishing up our series that we have been in uh, the majority of the fall here. It's been our DNA series, and as a church, what we have been talking about and learning about is, is really who are we as a church? What are the traits specifically that we should see in disciples that are formed by this church? What are traits that should be evident um, in their lives? And so the last trait that we talked about was the trait of serving the world, that a disciple, we believe, that is, is made here at Parkview East, um, that is produced here, should be, uh, this is a trait that should be evident in their life, that they are committed to serving the world. And so I'll, I'll kind of use that um, trait as our launch pad. If you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about the need to proclaim the gospel, right? And the way by which we serve the world, we've said, is kind of twofold. One is we proclaim the gospel. We, we put words to the gospel and we share it with those words. We tell others the wonderful news of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. This week, what our focus is on is on demonstrating the gospel. So not so much just saying the good news, but also showing the good news with our very lives. And so just the title of this message this morning is simply Gospel Demonstration. Um, I would invite you, if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, to open to Isaiah 58. We will be spending the bulk of our time in Isaiah chapter 58. If you do not have a Bible, you can just raise your hand and someone will come around and drop a copy of God's Word in it. All right. I um, invite you to open up your phones. The words won't be on the screen, so it will really be helpful. It is an ex a pretty long passage, and so I think you'll find it helpful to actually be looking at God's Word as we are walking through it. What I hope to show you this morning, the, the big aim of this message, and it may seem a little startling at first, and I, I hope that it does, because quite honestly, th there is a startling nature to this chapter in Isaiah. It's a beautiful chapter. But the big aim that I want, I want to show you this morning is that if you think, if you're sitting here this morning and you think you have a relationship with God, but you aren't concerned with the needs of your neighbor, you should re-examine your relationship with God. I'll, I'll say it again. If you're here this morning and you think, you, you would say you have a relationship with God. But if you are not concerned with the needs of your neighbor, I would ask that you re-examine your relationship with God. And I, I will show you this morning in Isaiah 58, it's, it's not me asking you to do that, it's God. So Isaiah 58, I'm just going to read the whole chapter. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness 
and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we examine these words, Father, God, I pray that you would send your spirit, that he would show us your son, and that you would allow us the grace of being able to not only examine your words, Lord, but to take careful examination of our lives as well. We pray that you would take these words, which we believe to be eternal and true, Lord, and we ask that you would write them on our very hearts. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. When uh, 
Our family goes and visits my wife's family in Belize. We have a couple of fishing spots that we find a lot of success in fishing. Um, one of them, it's kind of a weird name, but it's called Gras Gras. Okay, Gras Gras. You can say Gras Gras with me. Yeah, Gras Gras. Gras Gras is a great place. It's a great place to catch lots of big fish at Gras Gras. And they're tasty fish too. Tasty fish indeed. Uh, what's unique about Gras Gras is the way that it's laid out. Essentially what it is is a lagoon right off, my, my wife's family lives right on the coast, and it's a lagoon that, that comes right off of the sea. It kind of doubles back in, and then at some point in history, at some point in time, somebody bought this land, and they built canals off of this lagoon. And so as you, as you walk into the area, you can see what could be of Gras Gras. The idea was at one time to make it a, a development where folks would buy houses, be able to dock their boats right on these little canals and get quick access into the sea. But what will also strike you if you were to visit Gras Gras is as you walk in, you will be immediately struck by abandoned ships and overgrown banks. Essentially, they serve as a reminder of a beautiful dream, of what was at one point a glorious vision, a way of maybe making some money. But now, in the, in the words of Langston Hughes, Gras Gras simply is a dream deferred. It's an unrealized vision. It sits abandoned and neglected. It's a good fishing spot, though. Here at Parkview, at Parkview East specifically, we too have a dream, a vision of what this church, what God has called this church to be. Hopefully, as you have come over the last couple of weeks, you have caught a glimpse of what this vision is. If you are new here this morning, we welcome you and we hope that, that we'll do a little bit of justice in, in feeding your imagination towards what this vision of our church could be. But the idea is that as we pursue Jesus in all of life, that we would become a church where Jesus transforms lives, where he renews our city and as a result impacts the world. I hope you would see this as a compelling vision, as a glorious vision, an outpost of God's kingdom here on the east side of Iowa City, a place where the tired can come and find rest, where, where those who are unknown can come and, and be known and be loved, a, a place where those who, who mourn can come and be comforted, a city set on a hill, proclaiming the good news of Jesus with our lips and demonstrating the good news of Jesus with our lives. It's a, a wonderful dream. It's a wonderful vision. But dreams have a, a, a funny things. They have a funny way of maybe not ever being realized. Sometimes dreams remain just that, a dream. Now, there's often obstacles and challenges. I think of the, in the sake of, you know, gras gras, that analogy, there's probably financial barriers, probably policy and government maybe got in the way and essentially shut it down. But, but honestly, in Belize, it's not too uncommon to be walking around and see grand structures, homes that were built with a grand vision, but then left because life got in the way. There are, there are obstacles that can oftentimes keep us from realizing our dreams. Oftentimes, these obstacles, these barriers are completely out of our control. But sometimes, sometimes, the greatest barrier that we face in achieving our dreams 
is ourself. It's ourself. Our passage this morning is a not-so-gentle reminder that the greatest barrier the church faces in accomplishing this glorious and wonderful vision is actually the church itself. It's, it's not the advancing tide necessarily of secularization. It's not radical Islam. The greatest barrier that, that we face in accomplishing this vision and seeing this dream become a reality, it's ourself. As the church, God has called us to go and make disciples of all nations, to proclaim the wonderful news of forgiveness of sins. We long for this here in our city. Yet, we can get in our way of making this dream become a reality. You know, so to give you a, some background of what's going on here in Isaiah 58, I think it would be helpful uh, for us to turn to Isaiah chapter 2. And in, in Isaiah chapter 2, what's helpful about it is that we see that Isaiah, at the beginning of the book, was given a grand vision as well. Look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say come let us go to the mountain of the Lord for the house of God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem see Isaiah was given a wonderful dream a wonderful vision of who the people of Israel, of who they were to become. You know, a couple years ago I went to Ukraine and I'd been to Ukraine for a number of years and it was in 2013 that I went there and, and I, I got there and one of the first things I noticed was how different the airport was. It was radically different. When I had gone before, it was stoic, it was simple, it was nothing to like brag about. But now in 2013, it was, it was glorious. It was a beautiful, beautiful airport. And as I began to drive through the country, I saw that there were many changes throughout the country. What was the difference between when I was there before and 2013? The difference was, was that in 2012, Ukraine and Poland hosted the Euro Cup. And so as a result, there were nations flocking to this country. And they said, hey, if we're going to have all these people coming, you better do something about your infrastructure. Right? So they put money into things like their airport, into the railroads, into their transportation system, and their highways. And it looked totally, totally different. Why? Because all of the nations were coming. The vision that Isaiah gets from the Lord is, is similar. But it's not that nations would come to win medals or to watch games. It's that the nations would gather to hear the word of the Lord, to know his ways and to walk in them. In chapter 2, Isaiah is given a glorious vision of what God has called his people to be. But here in Isaiah 58, what we learn is that this dream this vision has not become a reality. It's not become a reality at all. Why? Well, this brings us to our first point. The first point that we see, the, the reason it has not achieved this is because we see that Israel suffers from what we'll call the perils of as-if religion. 
You see it in verses 1 through 5. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. In this verse, we see four verbs all saying the exact same thing. Essentially, there is a problem. God says to his people, what is it that has God speaking in such a dramatic fashion? Something, he says, is terribly off with my people. Keep reading. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. See, the problem as you read that verse is that on the surface, everything seems to look fine. Right? Everything seems to look fine. There doesn't seem to be a shortage of religious activity with the people of Israel. In fact, there seems to be an abundance. They're drawing near to him, it says, daily. And the aim of their devotion seems good, seems really good. They delight to know my ways. They delight to draw near to God. Good intentions. They want to be close to God. They want to know his ways. They meet with him daily. On the surface of their lives, everything seems to be okay. The key is there in verse 2. As if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. See, the problem is that Israel has settled into as if religion. They fill their schedules with spiritual activity, with external piety. They appear to be a Bible-reading, church-going knee-bending people as if they actually delighted in the Lord. Verse 3 exposes the very nature of their hearts. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. They are after, even in their religious activity, their own pleasure. And this is the problem with as-if religion. In nominal as-if Christianity, the world over. Genuine faith in Jesus is never compartmentalized to simply your private life. God doesn't compartmentalize life. We do. And that's part of the problem. See, what Israel was doing was they were using their religious duties as their get-out-of-social-responsibility-free card. Right? They were involved in all sorts of religious duties. Why would they do that? Religious ritual observance over their concern for their neighbor. Why would they do that? I'll tell you why. It's the same reason why you and I do it. It's because it's easier. It's easier. It is easier to go to church for an hour a week. It is easier to even be involved in a Bible study. And of course, don't hear me say, don't come to church, all right? There's extreme value in that. There's a tremendous amount of value in being involved in a Bible study or a community group, 
right? But it is so much easier to go to church for one hour a week than it is to open up your home to your neighbor, to share your food, it says, with the hungry, to see those in need and to actually do something about it, right? It's easier to just be involved in these rituals. Now, there is tremendous value in fasting and keeping the Sabbath. They slow us down, remind us to operate on God's strength and not on our own strength, but to use their observance as an excuse to neglect the needs of those around us, God says that's unacceptable to him. In fact, things are so bad, you, you would see that these guys aren't just using it as, as an excuse not to care for their neighbors. They're actually, see, they're, they're fasting. And, and on the Sabbath, what are they doing? Well, they're, they're exploiting their workers. Their workers don't have the Sabbath off. They're taking advantage of their workers. And in God's law, that's a no-no. If you take a Sabbath, you give a Sabbath to your workers as well. They're not just neglecting the needs of their neighbors. They're exploiting them. All covered up with their religious activity. We're told in James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's what true religion. Israel was practicing a hollow religion. On the surface, everything was shiny. It looked fine. But the minute you got a little beneath into where their heart was, there was a big, big problem. There was a big problem. Isaiah 58 specifically is very important to me. And the reason why it's very important to me is because it is this chapter of Scripture that caused me, my junior year of college, to actually ask this question. Do I really love God? When I discovered Isaiah 58, I was honestly fit the description of many of the people that God is indicting here in this chapter. I fit the description. I was involved in lots of religious activity. But when I discovered Isaiah 58... I began to examine my life, and do you know what I saw? I saw a lack of concern for my neighbor. I couldn't look at my life and see any place where I was caring for those who had needs, where I was feeding those who were hungry, where I was welcoming other people into my home who had need for shelter. I, it was absent, completely void of my life. This chapter, this chapter, God used to expose the hollowness of my faith. This as-if religion, we are told, comes with a serious, serious problem. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. As a result of this hollowed-out faith, God doesn't hear them. And they're trying to put the blame on him. Why don't you hear us? We're fasting. We're crying out to you. And you seem distant. This is why. This is why. Because their relationship with God did not inform or propel them into proper relationship with their neighbor. 
So what is the proper posture before God? We see this in verses 6 through 7, also in 9b through 10a. There is this, this structure that takes place in comparative sort of if and then. If you do this, then I will do this. And so we'll look at the if first. Verses 6 through 7, 9 through 10. Show us a different way. A, in a, a fast that is acceptable to the Lord. A, a way by which we operate where he does hear our cry. And that life looks like loosening the bonds of injustice, letting the oppressed go free, breaking every yoke, sharing their bread with the hungry, bringing the homeless into their home when they see the naked to cover them. Don't ignore the needs of their neighbor. Pour themselves out for the hungry. Satisfy the desire of the afflicted. That is the path God has called us to. That is the life that has been gripped and transformed by the very grace of God. That's what the life looks like. That we spend ourselves on behalf of our neighbor. That, that we are socially concerned. Why? Why? Why would God say this is the proper posture if you want me to hear your cry? Why would he say that? Well, I could think of a lot of reasons, but for the sake of time, I'll just share a couple. The first is it reflects the very character of who God is. Our social involvement is rooted in the very character of God. We see this in Psalm 147. You see that all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see God's character. He's something uniquely identifies with the poor, with the needy, with the hungry, with those who are on the margins of society. Psalm 147, 7 through 9. He executes justice for the oppressed. This is speaking of God who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless with the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. He, God, executes justice. He gives food. He brings freedom. He opens the eyes of the blind. He loves the righteous. He watches over the immigrant. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. All throughout scripture, this is who God is. And because of that, that's who we should be. Our what propels us to love our neighbor, to meet the needs of those around us, is because this is the God we worship. It's rooted in his very character. The other reason I would say why this should propel us, why devotion to God should, should lead us in a life style of doing good deeds for those around us is because of not just the character of God, but also the grace of God. What Isaiah is declaring shouldn't be that shocking to his original audience 700 years before Jesus came. God made provisions in his law for the poor, the oppressed, the widow, for the immigrant. But this morning, as we read it, we read it on the opposite side of the cross. How much more should the very grace of God compel us to live lives that are marked by a concern for the poor and the oppressed, this side of the cross. As we read these words, we read them through the lens of the cross. 
where Israel failed to display the beauty of God's law and love that we see in chapter 2 here in 58. They have failed to do it. Where they failed to do it, we know now Jesus succeeds. Think about it. The very Son of God took on flesh. He, he did what Israel could not do. Faithfully loving God and loving God. Neighbor, Jesus came to earth, born in a feeding trough. He himself, he himself became poor. He became poor for the poor. Born in a feeding trough. The Bible as he does his ministry, we learn that he says the foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. As Jesus went out through his ministry, throughout his life, he, he, he had to find shelter where he could find shelter, right? He, he spent his time living with those who were on the margins of society. He, he had to borrow, even when he was crucified, he had to borrow a grave because this man was poor. He didn't have a grave to be buried in. Jesus became poor and he gives himself to the poor, namely you and me. So that by his poverty, we might become an inheritance of the Lord. We might know what it means to be rich in God. See, I think one of the reasons why many of us may not give ourselves to the poor is because we see ourselves as superior to the poor. And that is a problem. That is a problem, right? The truth of the matter is we are all in desperate need of God's saving grace. We are all sinners in need of grace. Right? And so we should first start by seeing ourselves as poor and needy. And then when we recognize in our poverty how Christ has supplied us with the richness of his kingdom, well then, how ridiculous would it be to not extend that to those around us? Folks, this is the gospel on display. When we take care of our neighbor, when we love those around us, we are putting the gospel message on display for the world to see. We are to be gracious to others because God has been gracious to us. Now, now there's a wrong way, and if we're not careful, we can, we can think along a different line. The wrong way to be involved in this would be to say that we give ourselves to social activity, social concern, the needs of those as a grounds for being justified before our Lord. That's not true, okay? We, we don't do this. God isn't saying do this and then you'll earn my grace and mercy. No, no, no. We receive his grace and mercy and as a result, it leads to this kind of life, right? It's not the grounds for our justification, but it is the result of it. We see in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I heard a pastor say not too long ago, Jesus did not say, deny your neighbor, take up your comfort, and follow your dreams. No. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. With these three simple commands, Jesus describes the life of a disciple. This is the call of Jesus here in Isaiah 58. If your relationship with God doesn't lead you to care for your neighbor, you need to re-examine 
your relationship with God. Or said another way, if you say you love Jesus, but you withhold love from your neighbor, Jesus does not feel loved. And that's a problem. So, third point. The promise of a dream realized. See this in second half of verse 10 through the end of the passage. This section, we are given a wonderful description of what we long to experience here at East Campus. And it comes to us as a conditional sort of promise. If you, then I. If you give yourself to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with the Lord, God promises. If you do that, listen to the promise, then our light will break forth in the darkness. Healing will spring up among us. Righteousness will go before us. What a beautiful picture. His righteousness will go before us. And what's behind us, the glory of the Lord will be our rear guard. The Lord will answer when we call. The Lord will be our guide. We'll find satisfaction for our souls. Provide water for those who thirst. Rebuild that which has been destroyed. Folks, this section of Isaiah is all about revival. It's all about revival. And if you, as a member of this congregation, hope and long to see revival happen in our community, in our midst, he is giving us the game plan by which it will happen. And if you take the message I preached two weeks ago and you take this message and you combine them together, you can't have them separate. We don't do them apart from each other. We proclaim God's good news with our lips and we show it with our lives. If we want to see a movement of the gospel here on the east side of Iowa City, this is our game plan. This is our game plan. It is not a, a, a creative, genius idea that I thought up. Okay, anybody who's been around me long enough knows this didn't come from me, all right? This, this is what God is calling his people to. It's what he's calling his people to. And, and I would just challenge you. I would challenge you if you are here this morning and, and you would say you have a relationship with God. My, my challenge to you is to examine your life and to ask yourself, how is my relationship with God informing my relationship with my neighbor? How is my relationship with God informing my relationship with those who look different than me? Who live in a different part of town than me? Who come from a different part of the world than I do? How is my relationship with God informing those relationships? And if you are struggling to make a connection, if you're struggling to make a connection, then you need to re-examine your relationship with God. And, and I would just caution you, and I've said this before. Anybody who goes to Parkview East knows that this is, this is something that's really important to us, to hold these two things in balance, proclaiming God's news and demonstrating God's good news, to hold them in balance together, right? And, and, and you can, you can be a part of a church that is all about this, and still not have it evident in your life. Right? You can retweet tweets that are all about this 
and still not have it evident in your life. Do you hear what I'm saying? You can yes and amen, right? When you see really cool things happening among, in our midst, right? And you can be withholding your food from the hungry. And so don't hide behind the church. This is an invitation to step into this wonderful work. It's, it's, it's an invitation, really, to be a part of a revival. To see God's spirit move among God's people. And I, my question to you this morning is, are you going to receive that invitation? What, what are you going to do about it? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning and Lord, um, I just humbly confess that there are areas I know of my life where I seem to be saying, mine. Lord, and I pray that as I hold on to those areas and for just us as a church, as we hold on to the blessings that you have given us, Lord, I pray that you would, um, you would help us to trust your word, to take your word as truth, Father, and to practice it daily, Lord. I pray that you would protect us from an as-if religion, a hallowed faith, Father, and that you would move us to delight, to delight in who you are and what you have called us to, Lord. Father, we ask these things in your name. Amen.